0: you got a Bible, go ahead and find Ecclesiastes chapter three. Uh, I'll give you the warning up front. This is going to be a heavy one today, man. Like I I just leaned over to Rex Barrett and said, I get to be Debbie Downer and talk about death for three services today. So I want to set this up by saying a couple of things. Um, Ecclesiastes that we've been walking through for the last six weeks. Ecclesiastes is the most comprehensive good life experiment in the history of mankind. And what the teacher of Ecclesiastes is doing is he's basically showing us the options and the obstacles to the good life. It's the options and the obstacles. So here's all the options, everything under the sun that you can work towards to try to find a beautiful life, a meaningful life, a deep life, a happy life. Here are your options under the sun. And he's also really honest about the obstacles to the good life. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the biggest obstacles to the good life is death. It's death. William James called death the worm at the core in man's pursuit of happiness. And that's exactly the view of the writer of Ecclesiastes. What he's pointing out is that death, death is not just a crisis for the end of life, right? Death is not just a crisis when you're actually close to dying. Death creates an existential crisis for all human beings, even in the midst of vitality. So even when you're healthy, even when you're young, death is still a reality that hangs over you. So before we dive into this, I just want to say my sense today, my gut today is that there's a couple groups of people in the room, right? I feel like probably there's people in the room that are so aware of death, death feels more real than anything else in the world, right? We've got people that have buried loved ones recently. We've got people that have terminal illness in our church. And so there's a lot of people in our church like, you don't need me to invite you to think about death. Death is on your mind every waking hour of every single day. And I want to give you encouragement, like we're going to say some pretty awkward, heavy things about death today, but where this lands is really beautiful. Where it lands is hopeful, where it lands is rich. And if that's you today and death feels more real than anything, my hope is that by the end of this talk, you actually see how much God has provided for us in our frailty and mortality in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, there's another group of people, and I tend to think it's the majority in our church. Uh, We're a pretty young church, and I think that the majority of the people in our church, you actually need the terror of death to get surfaced so that you can look at it. You're carrying with you really suppressed and really buried fears as it relates to death that you just don't look at. You don't want to talk about it. You don't want to think about it. And in our American culture that sort of worships youth and vitality, and and by the way, we do, we worship youth, we worship vitality. In that culture, the last thing anybody wants to do is have a guy on a Sunday morning say, hey, guess what? Everybody's going to die. Let's talk about it, right? We want to avoid it. We don't want to look at it. We don't want to think about it. And yet here's the reality. There's like a whole lot of the iceberg under the surface that relates to anxiety and fear and compulsion and drivenness and all kinds of things that are affecting the way that you live life and worship Jesus and engage your family, your work, and your friends that are related to death, even if you're not willing to talk about what you're actually afraid of. So my hope today is this, like simultaneously by the grace of God, may today be really comforting for people that are thinking about death all the time and feel like death is the loudest thing in the universe, and may today actually bring a little bit of healthy, sanctified fear and sobriety to those of us that don't want to talk about our mortality. May both happen at the same time. So with that in mind, we're going to dive in. We're going to talk, first of all, about the crisis of death the crisis of death. Ecclesiastes chapter three, starting in verse 18. This is not a passage of scripture that you've ever seen in a Christian bookstore on a t-shirt. Here's what it says. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Here's what he's saying. Um, The the problem with death is that human beings are really bizarre creatures. And here's what I mean by that. We're kind of like gods and we're kind of like beasts. We're kind of like gods, lower G gods, and we're kind of like beasts. Here's what a psalmist said in the 82nd Psalm verse six. God is speaking and he says, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Here's the conflict of what it is to be a human. Um, We're kind of like gods, not capital G God, not the uncreated cause of everything, but we're image bearers of God. And as image bearers of God, here's some realities that are godlike. Like we have self awareness that other animals don't. We contemplate things like eternity and mortality like other animals don't. We have a desire in our hearts for things that are beautiful and holy to last forever. We studied that in Ecclesiastes when we talked about time, that God has planted eternity into the hearts of human beings. That's kind of God-like, right? We want love to last We want beauty to last. We want our lives to last. And here's the challenge of being a human being. We can reflect on those existential things that relate to what it means to be a human. We can reflect on all that. And yet, at the very same time, we're also a lot like the animals, aren't we? We have bodies that grow old and frail. We get weak. We get tired. We get sick. We're gonna turn back into the dust that we came from, and this creates the great conflict of what it is to be a human. How do you navigate life, how do you navigate life when you're kind of like a God that can think about self and things like meaning, and beauty, and eternity, and transcendence, and at the same time, you're kind of like an animal with this thing hanging over you at all times that says, hey, at the very best, you're going to get 80, 90 years, and then you're going to be put into the grounds, and your body's going to turn back into dust. See, we're we're like, if this is all there is, we're, we're kind of like really complicated worm food. And what that creates, what that creates for human beings, whether we want to admit it or not, what that creates is what we'll just call massive amounts of existential angst. Like, what is the meaning? Why am I here? What's the point of marriage and work and love and family if death gets the last word on everything? Charles Taylor, brilliant philosopher, loved Jesus, said some things that our culture really needs to hear. He he writes this in an article he did on death. He says, for death is one of the things that makes it very difficult to sustain a sense of the higher meaning of the ordinary life. In particular, our love relationships. It's not just that these relationships matter to us a lot and hence there's a grievous hole in our lives when our partner dies. It's also, listen to this, it's also that because these relationships are so significant, they seem to demand eternity. If I could be this honest, like when I contemplate the reality that the wife that I've been married to for 19 years is going to put me in the ground or I'm going to put her in the ground, that creates in me a sense of injustice. When I think about what it means to be a human being and to engage in love, that kind of love, that kind of relationship, that kind of depth seems to scream for eternity. This should last Taylor goes on to write, all joy strives for eternity because it loses some of its sense if it doesn't last. Stoic philosopher wrote these words and they just don't ring very true to us. Here's what he said. What harm is there while you are kissing your child to murmur softly, tomorrow you will die? (laughs) Well, seems like there's a lot of harm in that because We feel the holiness of love and the height of love and the depth of love and everything inside of us protests that love has to end and beauty ends. So though we don't talk about it and look at it, death creates this crisis. It creates this crisis because, yeah, we're kind of like animals. Our bodies break down and end, but we're also image bearers of God that want more and need more and demand more, that want our lives to have significance. This leads us to the second thing he tells us about death. It's not just a crisis, but it's common to man. It's common to man. This is the obvious stuff that we have to state up front. Here's what he writes in Ecclesiastes 9. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hands of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. As he who swears is, as he, as, as he that shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Under the sun. Told you I get to be Debbie Downer today. I'm not trying to set you up for a brunch win this morning. Like, here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying Death truly is the great equalizer. Religious people, irreligious people. Educated people, uneducated people. Rich people, poor people. Wherever you live, whatever your stage of life, whatever your socioeconomic level, whatever your level of intelligence, whatever your career is, white collar, blue collar, here's what he's saying, there's a madness in what it is to be human and the madness is the same destinations coming for all of us, namely death. Death is marching for all of us. And this crisis of death and this commonality of death, it's been dealt with in culture a lot of different ways throughout history some cultures almost get obsessed with death uh, but good old american culture our biggest strategy is that we try to deny death altogether we just don't want to talk about it we don't want to look at it and what's crazy is that we have this weird cultural moment as americans where we have death as entertainment fake fictitious death we have death as entertainment more than any culture in the history of the world right? Um, my, my kids and I watched the original Aliens movie, and uh, man, it's like, yeah, this is what we do. We watch people get sucked into space. We're Americans, right? So there's fictional death all over the place. Death is entertainment, but actual death, real death, is so pushed to the margins of our society because we don't want to look at it. We have people die in special places, whereas most cultures throughout history, people died at home with the rest of their family. We pay a special kind of person to get special kind of training to care for the bodies of the dead so that we don't have to look at it. Most of us, most of us have never even seen a dead body up close, And the reason is we're obsessed with vitality. We have this sort of ingrained American idea that if we don't talk about death, if we don't look at death, if we never have to smell death, maybe just maybe we can cheat death. The worm at the core on the role of death in life cites the story of a five-year-old kid named Richard that got interviewed by a psychologist. Let me read this excerpt from you. He swam up and down in his bath and he played with the possibility of never dying. I don't want to be dead forever. I don't want to die. After his mother told five-year-old Richard that he wouldn't die for a long time, the little boy smiled and said, that's all right, I've been worried, now I can get happy. And then he said he would like to dream about going shopping and buying things. (laughs) Why do I read that? Because like, He's five years old, but he nails the American philosophy of dealing with death, (laughs) right? He nails it, man. He nails it. We don't have to think about death. We can go to the mall, (laughs) right? We don't have to think about death. We can have brunch. We don't have to think about death because Amazon Prime is awesome. It's awesome, (laughs) And this is true for American culture. Um, Julie Beck in the Atlantic article that she wrote on death, she says this, Americans are the best in the world at burying existential anxieties under a mound of French fries and a trip to Walmart to save a nickel on a lemon and a flamethrower. I'm pretty sure you can't buy flamethrowers at Walmart, but I get the point. The point is, there's things that we don't want to look at. There's things that we don't want to talk about. And the American culture that we live in currently, we have become masters. We've become ninjas at the art of denying death. And there's a cost to that. There's a cost to not looking at our mortality. There's a cost to not having those conversations. There's a cost when you're carrying a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety, and you just keep stuffing it down into your belly to not look at it eventually it catches up with you. Charles Taylor writes this, the cost, of, the cost is a denial of the issue of meaning itself, something that can never be totally suppressed. Here's what he's saying. You know what the cost is of the denial of death? You actually miss out on some of the biggest questions of life. When you ignore death, when you pretend that death's not coming, it drives you away from some things that are true, some things that are big, and some things that are essential if you're going to figure out what does it mean to kind of be godlike and yet kind of be like an animal and carve out meaning in this world. And this leads us to the hidden wisdom in Ecclesiastes about death. Here's what he says in Ecclesiastes 7, starting in verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Can we just stop there and sit in how opposite that is to our culture? We do anything and everything to avoid going to the house of mourning. We don't know what to say to people that are mourning. We don't know what to say to friends that are really sick. We don't know what to say to people that have lost loved ones. We, we go to funerals because we care about people, but also because we're obligated to go to funerals. And we sit there awkwardly, not knowing what to say, not knowing what to do. And most of us would do anything in our power to avoid stepping into a home of bereavement and sadness. We don't want to go there. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. Like, stop for a second. Here's what he's saying there's some wisdom that you can't arrive at at a party. There's some things about the meaning of life and the beauty of life and the holiness of life and the fragility of life that you're not going to arrive at when you're having pizza and beer with your buddies. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now we have to ask the question, why? What's he pointing at? Well, remember what we said during week one of Ecclesiastes, that Ecclesiastes is in the Bible because it's framing the questions that the rest of the Bible is the answer to. Ecclesiastes is trying to lead you towards an honest assessment of a life lived under the sun when you long for something more than what's under the sun. And what he does with death, and the reason that he says it's better to go to the house of mourning, it's better to go to the house of sadness, it's better to weep than it is to laugh like a fool, the reason he's saying that is because when you sit in your mortality, when you face your mortality, when you take what's been denied and ignored and belittled, and you put it on the table in the light of day and you look at it, it leads you to ask some questions. It leads you to go on a quest. It leads you down the road through scripture in a journey of understanding just how great our need is for the redemption and defeat of death. Death is so big and it's so tragic and it's so universal that everything inside of us if we'll just look at it, everything inside of us cries out, can something from beyond the sun come into this world where death gets the last word on everything and bring meaning out of the chaos and decay of our lives being short? And the Bible actually gives a really beautiful, really true, really comprehensive answer to those that are willing to have the guts to go to the house of mourning. To those that are willing to stand in your mortality and long for more, the Bible has some things to tell you that are beautiful, that change everything. So here's what I want to do quickly. I want to tell you what the scripture has to say about death. If Ecclesiastes is framing up the question, what's the point of living if death is the great equalizer? What's the point of living if we're kind of more like animals than gods, but we long to be more like gods? What's the point of love? If that's the question, here's what the rest of scripture would say as the answer. will give you about five things quickly. One, scripture teaches that first of all, death actually isn't natural. Now I know in one sense it's natural, it's biologically natural, but death isn't natural in that Romans says, the wages of sin is death. And the creation account at the beginning of history is that God created human beings to not just have eternity stamped in our hearts, but he created human beings to be image bearers that would live forever. Death, therefore, is the result of sin. Sin brings in corruption. Sin brings in decay. And what this means is, the raging against death that we do as human beings is not just something that's an evolutionary process. Like you don't war against death with everything inside of you. You you don't try to eat healthy with everything inside of you. You don't go get painful medical treatments when you're diagnosed with cancer. You don't do that just as an evolutionary response because you wanna be able to pass off your DNA to your young. You do that because you're a human being and you have imprinted in you the reality that death is not what you were created for. There's an injustice to it. So we fight it tooth and nail. We war against it. We hate it. We raise our fist to death. And that's right because death is not just the cycle of life, death is not just the end of a loop that turns your body back into elemental nutritional supplements for plants so that people can eat. Death is a fracturing of what God created. Death is the opposite of what God created for humanity. Death isn't natural. Secondly, scripture teaches that death is a tyrant. Death is a tyrant. Listen to this in Romans chapter five. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted when there is no law. Listen to this. Yet death reigned, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who is to come. Here's what he's saying. Um, Death is not just this thing that's unnatural that we war against. Death is this universal tyrant. It's this dictator that's been warring against human flourishing since we brought sin into the world. It's spread to everyone. It's touched everything. It's tyrannical. It's a dictator. And this leads us to the sting of death. Now, what scripture says is a little different than what our culture feels. Scripture doesn't say that the sting of death is annihilation. It's easy to think like, what's the pain of death? Why do we fight it? Why do we avoid it? Why do we do things like eat wheatgrass? And why, why do we try to avoid wonderful gifts of God like bacon, because it might kill you? Why do we do that? And, and some of us think, well, it's because the sting of death is that you cease to exist and your memories are gone. And the sting of death is that you're separated from your loved ones. Well, scripture actually teaches something different than that. Scripture teaches that the, the sting of death the thing that makes death so terrifying is sin. It's that we've warred against, we've ignored and we've belittled the God that created us and death is the end of having a buffer zone where you can pretend like he doesn't exist. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says this, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Hebrews nine twenty seven. says, Frames up what is just so terrifying about facing your mortality. It says this, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Here's what's really terrifying about death. In the moment of death, the invisible becomes visible, and we're confronted with the uncaused cause of all things that created you and me for his glory, who we have constantly at every turn belittled, ignored, blasphemed, and traded for all the stuff that he's made. C.S. Lewis, I think, nails it. He hits the sentimental idea that if there is a God and you've ignored him and you die and meet him, it'll still go great because he's gonna be so good and wonderful. Here's what Lewis says. God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror, the thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He's our only possible ally and we've made ourselves his enemies. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They're still only playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger according to the way that you react to it. And we have reacted the wrong way. The sting of death is that in a moment, all of this material world that seems like it's the only reality, the concrete the things that we can try to manage, the things that we can go to to try to find comfort and satisfaction. In a moment, the veil of everything that has been created by the invisible disappears and what is invisible becomes visible. And what we see is a God of infinite holiness and purity. And what this does away with are the ways that most Americans try to hash out their fire insurance policy for when we die here's what we do. We say, Hey, look, um, one of two ways, one of two ways I'll be evaluated on the great day, the day of my death. If there is a God, one of two ways I'll be evaluated way one via comparison. So as long as I'm not as corrupt as really corrupt people, right? Like as long as I'm not like Pol Pot, as long as I'm not like Hitler, as long as I'm like somewhat decent and, uh, feel kind of bad about the things I've done to hurt other people, things will go okay. Or way number two is uh, the way of the scales, right? If all my good deeds get put in one scale and all my bad deeds get put in the other scale, as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, things are going to go okay. And I just want to ask a question. What if the absolute goodness you're confronted with on the day where the invisible becomes visible. What if that absolute goodness is not evaluating humanity via comparison or scales, but in light of his intended creation? What if our evaluation is not compared to people that are externally more jacked up than us? What, what if God's Blueprint for humanity is so big and so beautiful and so lofty that every single one of us fall incredibly short of possibly attaining it. I mean, what, what if all of our platitudes about, hey man, I'm doing my best, good deeds, bad deeds. What if all that just gets erased like a straw man on the great day? And God is more holy and more beautiful and more transcendent and more without sin than what you ever dreamed. What does that feel like to stand naked before that kind of holiness? Well, if it wasn't for Jesus, it would not feel very good at all. And that day would not go well for any of us. And yet scripture says something really crazy. It says the death of God's saints is precious in his sight. What does that mean? How can it be precious in his sight? How can we, as people that are broken and jacked up, stand before infinite goodness on a day of tragic death, and that be a precious thing? Well, let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus came from beyond the sun to live under the sun that he might defeat the tyrant known as death. Hebrews 2.14 says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. So stop for just a second. The weird reality of being a human, you're kind of like a God, you're kind of like a beast. Um, That's that you have this spirit. You're an image bearer of God, but you also have a body and you're gonna turn back into dust. That's you, children sharing in flesh and blood. Listen to this. He himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus took on flesh and blood that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. At the heart of the Christian faith is that Jesus comes from beyond the sun to actually experience the tyranny of death so fully, so completely, that on a cross, he bleeds out and dies And he does it in this crazy, mysterious, beautiful strategy of God to disarm the very power of the tyrant known as death, to free us from death through his resurrection. This is why Athanasius can write as an early Christian thinker, he can write instead of fearing death by the sign of the cross and by faith in Christ, disciples of Jesus trample on it as something dead. Death has become like a tyrant who has been completely conquered by the legitimate monarch, bound hand and foot. The passers-by sneer at him, hitting him and abusing him, no longer afraid of his cruelty and rage because of the ruler who has conquered him. So as death been conquered and branded, must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy that is destroyed is death. Now here, here's what Jesus does. He takes the sting out of death. Remember, the sting of death is sin. It's that you stand before infinite goodness, naked and bare with all of your lack of goodness in front of his eyes. Jesus takes the sting out of death by bearing all of the sin that we've committed. Taking it on himself. He overthrows the tyranny of death by beating death at death's own game. Jesus dies completely. He's laid in a tomb. He doesn't faint. He doesn't swoon. He is dead, put in a tomb, covered in burial cloths, laid in the ground. And three days later, he breaks the back of death by returning from the dead. Scripture teaches to have faith in Jesus is to be in him and to have him in you, which means his death that defeats sin is yours and his resurrection that overthrows death is yours. This is why Paul can say something really crazy in Philippians, really crazy and really beautiful. He says this, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell, living or dying. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to, to depart and be with Christ for that is much better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Here's the reality. Here's what he's saying. It's crazy. Christianity doesn't reframe death as death being something little or trite or something that you should welcome with open arms. But here's what it does. It so takes the power and the tyranny away from death that the day of death for a follower of Jesus The day of death for one whose faith is in Jesus is no longer a day of doom or destruction or annihilation or standing before infinite goodness with our repeated attempts at ignoring him. The death for a Christian is precious because it's the last act of faith where faith becomes sight. It's the last act of hope. Death for the follower of Jesus leads to glorification. It leads to the end of suffering and sin. Here's what he's saying in essence. For the Christian, life is about Jesus. For the Christian, death is about Jesus. And that thing that has, since the beginning of humanity, created such angst and terror in all of us, that thing, that thing, that seems to even out everything that you've been hoping to find meaning in and turn it all into dust through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That thing is overthrown and it loses its teeth. And here's what's crazy. This day hasn't happened yet, but upon the return of Jesus, the end of humanity, the end of the world is the death of death. Where death is made no more. Today, we stand with death defeated. There's a day coming where death dies. Death dies. So, today, I want to ask you a couple questions. Question one Are you a person who stands in the grip of the terror of death and it seems like the biggest, loudest thing in the world? If that's you, I want you to look at and lay hold of everything Jesus has purchased for you. The overthrow, the overthrow of that tyrant, freedom from tyranny, freedom from despair, where you can hope, like you can, you can aspire as a follower of Jesus to die well. And if today you're, you're just sort of ignoring the existential angst of death. I want you to bring it up into the light. I want you to do what the teacher of Ecclesiastes asked you to do. I want you to have the guts to walk into the house of mourning and let that house of mourning create wisdom in you by driving you to Jesus. Because all the money in the world can't purchase freedom from death. All the sex in the world, all the fame in the world, all the parenting techniques in the world, they can't get you around the reality of that being the end of your mortal life and that should drive you somewhere for a lot of people it drives them to all kinds of despair and sin and addiction but scripture sees it as an invitation to jesus to find rest to find hope